Okay, open up your Bibles, please. As we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Word of God, we are in Exodus chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. I don't want you to think I'm making any of this up. So, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. So, of the 66, you're, you're you know, one thirty-third into it now. I'm going to go straight to the Lord in prayer, and I'm going to do something unprecedented so far in this fellowship. My attempt is to get through two chapters. Yeah, does that make you nervous? Well, see, some of you are palpitating at the very thought of that, aren't you? Yeah. Those are the ones who've been here, by the way, for a while. Um, pray with me, would you please? <clears throat> God, I thank you so much for the, for the gift of this time. I know that your word really wants to reach us today. And you know where every one of us are. You know those of us who are running, those of us who are hiding, those of us who are stagnant, those of us who are delighting in you. You know those of us who feel like we have a grudge with you that don't. You know those, Lord, who are really just excited about coming to know you better. And Lord, I just pray that you would meet every one of us and draw us close today. Lord, speak our language today. God, that every one of us would hear you, that we would understand you, that your word would burst open and come alive, that we'd have so much fun in your word now. And God, I just thank you for the honor, Lord, to be able to sit here and know that you're going to minister to and through me. And God, so please get me out of your way. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit that I would disappear and fill me to overflowing, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. And speak to each one of us individually as well as corporately, God, I pray. So God, have your way now, I pray. Minister now. Perform your therapy. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I would say today as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume because I sit here with a mic and call myself pastor or whatever that, that makes me an expert in, on, in a market on truth. The book you have in your hands is to which you are to test all things. Now you can bet if I'm going to say that here. Of course, that's just a spiel for most of you. You're used to hearing it every time. But you can bet if I'm going to say that here, that I would challenge you to do that with everything else, too. Every time you open up a newspaper or watch the news or hear something come down the grapevine. Go back one verse for a moment so we could see how the people were left. In verse 31, it says, So the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, what caused them to do this? God, after the promise in Genesis 15, 430 years ago, had promised through Abraham that a fourth generation from being brought into a land that wasn't their own would leave. And it's much like a riddle in the sense that it sounds like a paradox. God says, here's the deal. You're going to go into a land that's not your own. You're going to serve there. You're going to be slaves. For four centuries, you're going to be slaves. And then you're going to come out rich. Everyone's just going to give you their stuff. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a bit strange to me. You know, the idea that, you know, you're going to be slaves, and then afterwards, the same people who beat you one moment are now throwing gold and silver at you. Well, that was the promise. Now, for 400 years, we haven't heard anything. For 400 years, we have not heard a prophet rise up. We've not heard a miracle maker. We've not seen anything. We've not heard anything and, until roughly, to be honest, about 80 years ago. Uh, 80 years ago from this particular moment that we have in text, a boy was born during a time when a pharaoh 
was completely intimidated by the people of Israel because they were stronger and more powerful, greater than, than, than he was and his nation. Ironically, the bully is never the strongest person in class, though he may look like it. And this was one of those cases. He's like, so they're bigger, they're stronger, so let's intimidate them. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a bit strange to me to think. But I get the idea. Some people recognize if you don't scare them into, re- you know, uh, before they realize how big and powerful they are, you've got a bigger mess on your hands. So let's scare them while we still can. And that's the idea. And it goes from bad to worse to worse. And in all of that, ultimately, Pharaoh seeks to destroy every male child that is born. And with that, during that season, a boy is born who, by the way, then is against the law to have such a baby. Now, as the boy is born, the child is hid for three months, and the child can no longer be hid. So the mother just goes and she takes that baby and puts it in a big basket, an ark, wraps it in pitch so it'll float and will be waterproof in essence, and then sets it, not sends it floating with a big sail, but sets it in the Nile. Now understand, the Egyptians are extremely... Uh, they're very, very superstitious people, and they believed all life came from the Nile. So here is Pharaoh's daughter, who I remind you politically is the woman in charge of deciding who the next Pharaoh is going to be after the one that's in charge at the moment. That's why many of the boys married their sisters. With that, she goes bathing in the water, the one spot, by the way, in all of the Nile where there aren't crocodiles, which is, of course, where a princess should bathe. And, And in that, she discovers this baby floating in a basket, opens up, the top of the basket or whatever the case is, the baby begins to cry. According to Jewish tradition, which is just as superstitious in my opinion, um, the, it says that an angel pinched him. Well, you don't have to pinch a baby to make an angel, a baby cry. All you have to do is be a parent to recognize that. Nonetheless, she has compassion. And as she has compassion, um, Moses' his older uh, sister, Mariam, Mariam, by the way, Mara means bitter, gives you an idea how they name their children. And with that, Bitter looks over and says, Hey, you want me to find someone to nurse her? Him, him. And and with that, she says, Yeah, go ahead. So mom, who had given up the baby in faith, now gets to nurse the child until the child is weaned. Who would have thought? Not only do you get to nurse the child that should have been killed according to edict, but we're also going to pay you to do it. And only God can work out such a story like that. Now from that, he is raised in the opulence. And by the way, we don't even know what his Hebrew name is. All we know is the name that Pharaoh's daughter gives him, which is Moshe, when Moshe means drawn out. Who would have known that that would be his name, not only for what happened to him, but what will happen through him as well. He will be the one that will draw out as well. I drew him out of the water, she says. We're going to call him drawn out. And so it is. And for 40 years, he is raised much like the royalty. And I can remind you, it's Pharaoh's daughter that has the responsibility of deciding who the next Pharaoh is. And with that then, you would imagine that probably this boy is being primped and primed to take over. Somewhere in that, it appears he is at heart to see the Hebrews um, delivered, and it appears as if he's aware of the fact he's one himself. At 40 years old, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating an Egyptian slave. Now that is important to recognize, because by this chapter, we kind of get the idea here that it's, pretty, it's, well, it's common play. Now, with that, Moses does what any... Um, no, that's not true. He just he steps into it and he just kills the guy. Now we read, by the way, he looks to the left and he looks to the right and just kills him. Now, I'm a parent and I know when a child looks to the left and looks to the right, whatever's going to happen next is no accident. And, and with that, that's the, he just downright kills the guy, thinking somehow that's going to help the situation. The, ne- the next day, he goes overseas to 
uh, Hebrews finding. One seems to be a bit of a punk and cheeky at that. And he turns to Moses and Moses, cut it out. You guys, can't we all just get along? And he looks and goes, well, who made you boss? And that's kind of the idea here. And he turns around and Moses realizes the news is out that he had killed somebody. And so he flees. So the first 40 years were spent in plenty. Then the next 40 years will be spent in the opposite. He will learn how to become a shepherd, how to lead helpless, dumb animals. What perfect training. (laughs) Now, you may not like the fact that that's how God views us, but that doesn't make it any less true. And sheep do have hard heads. They can run into each other, big cotton swabs with legs. And they bounce and boing and bounce and boing. But in the end of it all, they're really just cotton balls with legs. And with that, Moses will spend the next 40 years relatively in obscurity with one child, and then we find a second one by the end of the last chapter. The child he names first, Garshom, which means a stranger here. Not from around here. Just a fun name to name your child. Imagine him in school. What's your name? Not from around here. That's going to make it easy to blend in. So Gershom it is. Second child steps in at that point. Uh, we know that later on. His name Eleazar. Eleazar means God our helper. God has helped to deliver me from the sword of Pharaoh. And at this point, God says it's time to go back. And God spends then more than a chapter trying to convince Moses that he's the guy for the job. Now, so many people want to argue over God's calling, and especially over the area of salvation, which, by the way, is nonsense to me, because if you're saved, you know you're saved. So what's the difference? Why would you argue over whether somebody else is? In other words, I knew God picked me. I'm not sure whether he'd pick you. That seems silly to me. But in the area of calling, that makes another story, because the idea here is, as I can't pick my calling just as much as you can't pick yours. And God, when you responded to him, God had a plan for your life that was so much more than taking up a seat. God has no intent for you to sit in the stands. As a matter of fact, playing in the field is part of the fun. And if you're going to get tackled and you're going to get grass stains anyways, you might as well earn it. That's my attitude. The stands were for unbelievers so they could be jealous and want to join. That's the idea. And if they're not sitting there, it's pretty likely because we filled the stands ourselves. Well, with that in mind, Moses takes the calling after a bit of arguing, and he says, how are the people, I mean, first of all, I have to convince the Hebrews they're going to believe that, that God, that you sent me. I don't even know who you are. I don't even know who I am. God's like, well, what's this? So it's a staff. Good, at least you know something. We're going to start with that. And we work, and he shows them a series of miracles, and then ultimately sends them back, and he goes, look, you're going to speak to the people. And Moses finally says, can you just send someone else? I mean, which, by the way, tells you that even in midst all of the insecurities that you seem to be throwing before God, God knows what you're doing. He knows that this is not that you really are really cautious because you're afraid you can't do it. And the end of all, he knows really the issue is not that you're not able, it's just you're not willing. And that's where God gets a little bit angry. And as he does, he's like, look at Moses is like, I I can't speak well. And God's like, don't play that game with me. I made your mouth. I know better. And I'll be with that mouth. And he finally says, could you just send someone else? And he goes, look, your brother's coming to meet you. And if your brother's coming to meet you, why don't you just let him speak? And now it becomes a little bit stranger than it did before. Because now Moses has to walk with his brother. Moses, will read at the end of this, will be 80 and his brother 83. And they're going to walk over before Pharaoh. And Moses is going to look at his brother and go, pss, pss, pss. And his brother's going to go, let my people go. Very different from the movie. And, and by the way, we're going to learn on this, by the way, Pharaoh knows who both of them are by name. He's going to go, Moses and Aaron, what are you doing here? 
So which has got to look funny, which means if he knows Moses, is it funny that Moses is in a... Now! Please! I mean, how strange is that? And you know, that was not God's intention initially. God, what God would have loved is to use a man, but now he's got to use... You've got to have a sidekick. Sidekick. Because every hero needs a sidekick. Now we're in chapter 5. Finally, he's done these little sort of dog and pony show. He's done his miracles before the people, and the people actually believe. With that, they believe the Lord has visited them and looked upon their afflictions, and so the people worship. That's how we left it. Now, if it were anything like we wanted, this book would really, to be honest, be one more chapter long. The chapter where God kicks you know, Pharaoh's rear end and all the uh, Egyptians, kills all the Egyptians, and all of them walk out rich. Amen, end of story, and then Jesus came. I mean, that's the way the book may have shown, but it isn't. As a matter of fact, what we're going to find is this is a really rough season. And the reason why it's a really rough season, to be honest, is it just doesn't happen right away. God's come down to deliver you. That's the message. He's here to deliver you. And for that, you say, hallelujah. If you're humble enough to realize you need to be delivered, that's fantastic news. It's fantastic news either way. The issue is just whether or not you think it's pertinent to you. But now, Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, we have our first encounter with Pharaoh. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I remember, that's... Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Don't say so much. Let, let my people go. That they may hold my feet. What? Oh, they may hold a feast. A feast to me. In the wilderness. I mean, think about how strange this is. And by the way, how strange would it be for Pharaoh? I mean, you're sitting here, right? You don't have cable, right? You don't have a satellite dish. And you're just kind of wanting something to entertain you. And these two guys come walking in. And you, and it's obvious, right? I mean, and they've been very desert-worn. They're kind of covered in sand. And then you kind of look, and Moses begins to be the strong, silent type. And he's like... Psh, psh, psh. And this thing begins. And at first, if I were Pharaoh, I would just chuckle and say, Who brought these guys in? Thank you. Thank you. That's how it starts, right? But notice, by the way, Pharaoh's response. Because Pharaoh's response, by the way, will be very similar to just about every one of us as we share with somebody out there on the streets. Or maybe with you right now. See, understand, Pharaoh isn't, I mean, what part of Pharaoh is going to go, yeah, that's a really good idea. Let's dump 2,000, you know, 2 million people that are our slave business, the cheapest labor we could possibly have. They're making brick. Now, who are we going to hire to do that at the same, you know, fee right now? So, I mean, here we are. We have all of this. Look at how much I have to lose. Think about that. How many people I have served me. Think about how important I am in my position right now. And I remind you, Pharaoh politically was supposed to be, at least according to Egyptian rule, was supposed to be responsible for the thing called the ka. Kind of like that drink you can get in the store, ka. Well, same spelling. And the idea of the ka is, that was sort of the order of the universe, not the drink, but the the actual pharaoh. Sorry, now, now here's the idea. According to the Egyptians, Pharaoh's job was supposed to be, the siphon was supposed to be the bottleneck between the gods, which by the way were just as human as anyone as far as their emotions and weaknesses, and and man. They were supposed to be sort of that bridge, so much so that they were kind of part man and part God in the eyes of the people. So with that in mind, Pharaoh's job was to keep order in the universe. Could you imagine how difficult it would be to think you have to keep your universe in, oh wait a minute, that if you don't have Jesus, pretty much that's where you're at. Just let's be honest. 
And that's the fun thing about being a Christian. And someone wants to ask me a question I can't answer. I don't have to answer every question. I'm not running my universe. It's kind of nice. How does every atom hold together? Excuse me, I'm not holding them together. You're asking the wrong guy. Who was Cain's wife? Why don't you ask Cain? If you, if you die and you, you give your life to Jesus, you can ask him. Well, what if Cain isn't there? Don't accept the Lord and ask him on the other side. I mean, anyways. And, by, by the way, that's not advice. And understand, Pharaoh's response, I think, is very telling for every one of us as we try to share the truth of Jesus with other people. Now, look, if you haven't accepted Jesus, tell me if this is what your heart says. If I were to say to you, stop sleeping with your girlfriend. Stop going out and getting drunk. Stop clubbing. All those things, by the way, and you go, well, I, I know there are Christians that are out there that do that. I'm like, well, I, that's none of my business. And I'm telling you, you need to let go of all of this stuff. You understand, that's what you're telling Pharaoh. And I think it's very telling that we can see what he says. Now, please understand, the gospel message begins with the cross, but ends at an empty tomb. Please recognize that. The cross is the place of sacrifice. We present the cross to people, and of course, I mean, what part of that tastes good to any of us? It's bloody, it's torturous, it's miserable, it's the place of complete sacrifice. And for most people, that's what they know of Christianity. It's the cross. But see, Jesus didn't just die. If Jesus died, he was a well-meaning guy, but he wasn't God like he said he was because God conquers death. Jesus died at the cross for my guilt and your guilt. No one else offered to do that, by the way. And then he rose from the dead to prove that it was enough, to prove he really was the God that he said he was. See, the reason I don't go and do drugs, to be honest, is because I don't need to anymore. I remember what it was like to need to do drugs. I remember that. I drank a six every day. And by the way, believed I was completely sober or I was so drunk I didn't know the difference. Now, in that though, the idea of that was is that that was my diet. I was on a liquid diet. It's amazing I'm not 55 stone by now. But I remember what it was like the first time someone put a bowl in front of my face and I said, I don't need this anymore. And see, the beauty in all of that is, and some of you here, you know that. You remember what it was like when a needle looked good. And I say, you need to let that go. And you're like, some of you are like, I can't. I don't want to, and I can't. But see, the empty tomb says that there's a new life, and I traded that in. I don't have to sleep around. And it wasn't because I got married. Though I did, and am. It's because Christ fulfilled every part of me. According to the book of Proverbs, it says, to the hungry soul, even the most bitter thing is sweet. But the satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. You ever have a meal so good you don't want to have dessert? Just had one of those a little while ago. But for a desperate, hungry soul, your sock looks good. Little HP sauce, you'll eat your shoe. And that's the... That transfers pretty easily to a relationship, to a drug, to a place, to anything. It's bitter, but it's at least it's something. So he says, let it go. That's what God says. And by the way, here's my message to you too. Let it go. God's not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of. And you'll never know what he'll put in your hands until you let go of what you're fighting God over. Pharaoh's response, and we've got to verse 2, and you're probably already praying. When are we get out of here? 
Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, so I'm not going to let Israel go. Now, by the way, that's a very good, honest answer. Let's be honest. He's like, I don't know this guy. And if I don't know this guy, why in the world would I want to do what you told me? And by the way, that makes perfect sense. And the same thing should happen for us. I would expect that if people were honest enough with us, and I tell you, you know what? You don't have to. Now, I'm not going to tell you, stop doing this and stop doing that. I'm going to say, you don't need to do that anymore. I've got someone better. And you're like, well, who is he? And if all I can tell you is, well, he's the God of my grandpa. Who, by the way, I don't believe he is. He was a God I heard stories about. And you're like, well, how has he affected you? If he hasn't affected me, how in the world would I expect you to believe what I have to say? God has not called us, by the way, please hear me on this. God has not called us to be arguers or debaters. Scripture never tells us that. What God calls us to be is evidence. And in the courtroom of a human heart out there, there are enough people out there, and let's face it, there are great lawyers and solicitors that are out there that could debate a case with no evidence and still win, but in the end of all, you know there's something shady going on. And the people that follow that, you think, that's really not a healthy jury. A healthy jury should be honest with the evidence and genuinely honest and objective to weigh it. And somewhere down the line, someone convinced us we, if we were smart enough and we could pull up enough dusty books and people that had been dead for 2,000 years that said something or 1,500 years, maybe someone will believe us. But in the end of it all, people aren't interested. I'll be honest. People aren't interested in those people that we can't even pronounce. Hippolytus? What's that? Is that Greek for hippo? What does that mean? Right? And in the end of it all, you're like, I know he was a historian. He's a historian. He's dead for 1,500 years. How much history did he have to write about? But in the end of it all, look at I'm lonely. Can you tell me about that? You know what? I'm desperate. Can you tell me about that? I woke up with another hangover. I don't even remember where I was last night. Could you help me with that? I'm so tired of being in one lousy relationship after another. Could you tell me about that? And you're like, no, no, no. Let me tell you about Hippolytus. And they're like, shut up with Hippolytus. Tell me how God changed your life. Because by the way, that's a lot harder to argue with too. And if people were to respond, and maybe that's your attitude today, you're like, well, who who does this guy think he is? Telling me I have to let go of this stuff. The problem is Moses isn't even going to play this well. Because if Moses was going to play this well, he'd say, look, this is a God who actually loves you and loves me. He's a God who keeps his word, his promises, and he's a God that is everything. He's I am. He's everything I need. He's everything I need. And by the way, that should give you permission to look at me at those times when something I thought I needed doesn't follow through. You go through some hard time. It is amazing how many people that don't believe in Jesus start sniffing around you. And at that moment, you're like, get away from me. I want to have a moment in the flesh. And people like God's like, no, this is the moment where they're looking for evidence. Everyone can smile when you got a reason to be happy. Tell me about the joy of the Lord, because that's supposed to be when you ain't got anything to be happy about. At that moment, people go, well, where's your God now? And we're like, you know, when someone tells me, you know what, I missed the bus, I'm gutted. And I'm thinking, wow, I hope those grow back quick. Because you'll be gutted in another 25 minutes when your team loses. You know, I mean, it's, you know, we look at that and there are people, you know, people jumping out of buildings because Arsenal's under at the half or something. And, and I realize, man, we, we can't be like that. And this guy, his answer is, well, who, who does this guy think he is? I don't know him. And, you know, that is actually a really good answer. For which our answer could be at a moment like that, but you could. And the bottom line is, you are going to know him. You just may not know him the way you're going to want to by the time this is done. 
You can meet God. He, by the way, he's going to be God Almighty and he's going to be Lord either way. The question is whether you want to stand on the losing team or whether you want to be on his. It's never about whether God's on your team. Jesus isn't about like, look at whoever's, whoever I'm, uh, if, whoever I'm not against, I'm for. He says, whoever is against, whoever is not against us is for us. That's the, what Jesus is saying. The issue is Jesus's team. He's the captain. So what does he say? Moses' response. Well, who is he? Imagine what Moses could say. He's a bush. He's on fire. But he doesn't burn stuff up. He told me to take my sandals off. No, that's not what he told me. And remember, all of this, Aaron's got to look at Moses. Moses has got to respond back to Aaron, and Aaron's got to tell him. Right? So he's like, um, he could have said, the God of my great-great-great-grandfather who sent him out from the land of Ur and provided for him the entire time. Who gave him a son when he was a hundred. Oh, don't worry. His wife was younger. She was 90. <laughs> and that's still a fall chick. She's no spring chicken by that point. She's kind of a winter chick at that point. Just the God, he's the God who raises the dead because his son should have been good as dead up on Mount Moriah. He's the God who restores a man to his family, creates a new man out of an old. He's the God who makes family as multitude. I mean, what you're dealing with, the problem you're dealing with is because God promised that these guys would be really fruitful. He's the God who keeps his word. Every word, he keeps it. That's who he is. But what does he respond? The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, which is interesting because us, by the way, would have to mean Aaron as well. Which, Remember, God did say to Aaron, go speak with your brother. Because he's not willing to do what I told him, so I have to use you too. Please, let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, this is a really odd thing if you think about it. Because Moses, is, if you think about it, is playing Pharaoh's compassion. He's like... Well, what he says is this. Please, could you let us go into the wilderness? Because we don't want our God to hurt us. Please, if you don't, God's going to get angry at us. Do you realize how odd that is? Is that the God you want to present? Because that's, by the way, where a lot of people believe. Of And by the way, if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, pretty likely that's what you believe. Do you realize every other God that's out there, you worship to keep him away? Do you realize that? Because they are angry, nasty, vindictive, wrathful people. So why in the world would you want them in the room? The farther away they are, I mean, I remember being in India and in Calcutta, my first day landing there. It's you know, I mean, flies are dying from dehydration as they buzz through the air. Rocks are starting to melt. It's all, I mean, it's like it's not incense. It's just dust that catches fire. And anyway, and when I'm walking through, and there's this guy, and he's got to be between 90 and 100. He's naked and he's rolling down a hill. He's and there's pieces of glass and bone and stuff on the street. And I'm, I'm thinking. Boy, I'm not in Kansas anymore. And I just, this is okay. I expected it to be different, but not this different. And I turned to my the, the guy I was with, who's, who happened to be a native there, and I go, "So, can I ask, what's this?" Actually, I think my question was, "Is this normal?" I think that was my first question. Or, I mean, are you going to do this? Are you expecting me to do this? Because I'm getting back on the plane. You expect me to do this? And and he says, "No. See, Kali is a god of vengeance, uh, and so Calcutta is named after Kali." And what he's doing is he's worshiping him. I'm like, so he's worshiping him by hurting himself. I mean, this man could die rolling down the hill at this point. He said, yeah, yeah, but at least Kelly won't get him. I'm like, but death will, so that's okay? And you know, and he's like, yeah, 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 I don't get it either. So I'm like, okay, well, 
that's good to know. But I, and I think about it, and it was then that it hit me as I remember reading all of these other books, because I didn't, the last thing I wanted to be was a Christian. I mean, when I started, um, when I, when I was in America, and I knew that I had a heart to worship, I mean, I knew I had a desire to, to, to find something transcending, I really, I thought, well, that's, isn't that kind of the American thing? Let's find something more exotic. And so I read everything else, and I'm telling you what, I'm like, boy, these, there really only are two religions in the world. There's the religion where you perform and God decides at the end of it all, or whatever the God you want to call it, decides whether it's good enough. So you are the sort of, you do the, the, you know, you're the motivator and he's the adjudicator. And then there's the God who loves you, who chased after you, who's chasing after you and wants you to make the decision at the end of it all. And I think, wow. I mean, even if they were all true, which I do not believe, but even if they're all true, I would still pick the same one. Because he's the only one who loves me, who wants me, and is still chasing after me, even when I'm running to him. And I think, what a great idea this is. But I don't worship God to even draw him close. To be honest, I don't even worship God to get his presence because that could be kind of cheap if you think about it. It's like, well, you know, if I could just get a little bit more tingles and a little bit more fuzzies and a little bit more, because we could worship his presence. Like, to be honest, it's, it's like the new high. And I used to get drunk. Now I worship God's presence. I worship God because he is near and because he loves me, because he lives inside of me and because he's already redeemed me. And if he does nothing else for the rest of eternity for me, I have more to, than enough to praise him from this point on for eternity. And I wish him, I'm going, boy, wouldn't it be cool if you laid off of me a little bit? No, actually, to be honest, lay on me all you want, God. I know it's good. So, but, but Moses' answer is he's, he's appealing to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I mean, God's going to like get us if we don't do this. And let me just say, look at, will God get you if you run from him? Well, God wants you miserable if you're running from him. Because to be honest, God created you to be with him. Why would he want you happy any other way? And so you spend your life and you're restless and you're nervous and all this stuff is happening and you're like, oh, come on. God's like, look it, you can still surrender to me. It's all it's going to take. It's amazing how simple it is. The one thing that God requires of you is the one thing every human being can do and nobody does it well. And that's surrender. Isn't that cool? So you don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be smart or disciplined. Nobody has the advantage because God, all he wants. Hero Israel. God's one. I want your love. That's what he wants. Everything else is inconsequential. If he has your love, nothing else will matter. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. And he said, let us go into the journey. Let's go three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice. And he knows how long it is because they just came from there. The king of Egypt now says to him, and notice he says, Moses and Aaron, so he knows who they are. Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from there. Do you realize how bad this day has been, you showing up here? How bad it's been for profit? Do you realize how much you're janking with my world just to show up here in the first place? Stop messing with me. Get back to work. Same day Pharaoh commanded now, and he says, by the way, and again, verse 5, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many, and you make them rest from their labor. You're making people stop. Yes, of course he is. The people are now. Do you? How many of those people do you think that have just been bowing their heads and worshiping? Remember the last verse of the last chapter. How many of them do you think at this moment are thinking? They're packing their bags, they're wrapping everything up in a big, you know, cloth and going. It's time to go. It's time to go. They have no idea it's going to get worse before it gets better. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, the officers, saying, "You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves." And you shall lay on them the quote of bricks as they were made before. 
You shall not reduce it for their idol. Therefore they cry out, saying, let us go sacrifice to our God. Now remember, Pharaoh's like, you know, I'm supposed to be their God. That's the idea here. They're leaving me for this. I have too much to get done. I have too much to lose. And why am I going to obey a stranger? Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go, get yourselves straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all of the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. Because the straw, by the way, grew in the area or territory of, well, to be honest, it was sort of the corn area of the lower Egypt where they were. And if the Egyptians own that land, they're like, well, you're going to have to go places where we don't own the land. You can't go into our fields anymore. And so with that now, they're scattered all over and they're just looking for anything they can put in it. Remember, the idea of it is to dry the brick because what they're doing is they're making giant mud bricks and putting straw in it to suck some of the water out of it so they'll dry quicker. So remember, a brick's not a brick until it's dry. Before that, it's a square mud pie is what it is. So you can't say, here, here's my brick. It doesn't work. So you're waiting. Some of you are aware of that because you put clothes in the dryer this morning and maybe by nine tonight, they'll be dry. So the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota as where it was before. The officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and said, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick, both yesterday as today and before? Now, understand, God is doing this. Now, God is not making these guys beat them. But I understand what God is doing in this. Because, see, God is still going to deal with these people. Because even when they leave, some of those people wish they hadn't. And God is creating in this, please hear me, in order for God to get you out of where you are, one of the first things he has to do is create an animosity between you and the people you're not supposed to be hanging with anymore. And you know what the amazing thing is? You start thinking about giving your life to Jesus, and you know, I can't really hang out with those people. Don't make fun of me. I made fun of Christians before this point. And somehow, by the way, that becomes a weighing element into whether or not you're going to receive Jesus. You're like, you know what? I won't receive Jesus, because if I do, I mean, I'd rather go to hell and hang out with my posse for a while than actually get made fun of later on for it and have my girlfriend break up for me and with me. And maybe my boss will fire me. And you know, I mean, all this crazy stuff that goes on through your head. And you know what God does? He goes, I'm just going to give you animosity. And he goes, I'm going to help you make that choice. Because even after all of this, people are going to look back and go, oh, Egypt. I'm like, Let me, come here, come here, fool, come here. Turn around, take off your shirt for a second. Come here, fool. Look at that back. Look at that back. Where did those stripes come from? And you saw it. He beat her every day for three years. She went out with him for three years. Every day he beat her, except for three minutes, somewhere in all of that. And you're sitting down and you're having lunch in a song place and she goes, that's our song. I miss those three minutes, right? You know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, for the last three years, you were beat up every day. And you're going to forget about all of that for three minutes when you looked in your eyes and said you were cute when that dress was on? And we do that with our life. It's not the good old days. If it was the good old days, we wouldn't have come to Jesus in the first place. It's not the glory days. The glory days, by the way, are ahead of you, not behind you. There's a reason why when that car speeds out, the back gets covered in dust. God says, look, don't look back like that. But in order for that to happen, he, if he's going to deliver you from your present, he's not going to make it pretty. And all of a sudden, there's an animosity here. And you think, God, where are you in this? 
You said you were going to rescue. Where's my rescue? God's like, well, the bottom line is, I need to rescue you. Hear me on this. I need to rescue you from you first. Because the biggest problem is, is even when you get out of Egypt, you still got to take you with you, and you're a mess. So the officers, verse 14, of the children of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over him were beaten. Why haven't you filled the quota? Verse 15. Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? Notice, by the way, here's going to be the next thing. is You're going to have to ultimately figure out who you serve. Remember, Moses said, can we go out in the wilderness so we can... Well, actually, Aaron said it. Moses went... Psh, 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 psh. Can we go out in the wilderness so we can serve our God? And the people go like, look at Well, we're, 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 really, we're Pharaoh's servants. That's who we are. Now, please hear me. God is not behind the Holocaust. But I can tell you this. God had promised. God had promised. For 1,900 years. Actually, to be honest, it was beyond that because we're looking now at 400, 500 years before that. So now we're looking at 2,400 years before it came about. He promised that Israel would be born again in the most tumultuous and horrible times, suffering like no one had ever seen before that point, and yet not like the end times where it'll be worse. Israel will be born at a time of unprecedented suffering. Now, I have an adopted grandmother in Israel. Her name is Asia. Beautiful, beautiful gal. About Ruthie's height. Maybe shorter, actually. Um, she's, um, she did, wasn't able to grow because of the things that they had done to her. They had put in a death camp. They had done, I mean, un, well, we don't even get into her eyes as deep as the sea. And I remember her talking to me about what it was like before that point. And she's like, before we were hauled into these camps, we were not Jews. We were Polish, we were Romanian, we were Russian, we were Italian, we weren't Jews. It was this situation that all kinds of strange things happened. For the first time in my life, I heard Hebrew songs when we were taken to that camp. Men were drumming them up from 40 years before because they no longer even realized who they were. They had so assembled I should say, dissembled into society. The reason I say that is 400 years is a healthy amount of time for you to forget who you are. Four years is a healthy amount of time for you to forget who you are. Four months is enough time for you to forget who you are as in Christ. And all of a sudden, you've become a secretary. All of a sudden, you've become an erudite. And, you know, you've become an academic. You've become an athlete. You've become, and you put your thing here. And you've forgotten, this is about Jesus. And somewhere down the line, something happens and animosity comes. And all of a sudden, you're like, wow, who do I cry out to? I've, the bottle ain't working and I can only watch so much Oprah. You know, and sooner or later, you're finally like after 16 tubs of Ben and Jerry sitting on the floor or whatever, Hagen dazs And now you're kind of looking and going, man, something's got to change. And God goes, you know, you could try me again. And all of that. understand what God's doing in all of this. They're asking, why are you doing this to us? Aren't we your servants? And God's like, no, you're not Pharaoh's servants. You just think you're Pharaoh's servants. You've been trained to be Pharaoh's servants. You've been trained to be a sucker. That's what you've been trained to be. You've been trained to be a sucker so much that that's just who you think you are. So you're singing the loser songs and just going, that's just who I am because that's who I was raised to think I am. I'm just tissue that breathes. Isn't that what my science teacher taught me? No, you're not that. You're created with a purpose. 
The officers then, the children of Israel, came and cried out to Pharaoh, Why are you dealing with this? There is no straw given to your servants that they may... They tell us, make us brick. Indeed, your servants are beaten, but my fault is in your own people. But the fault is in your own people. And he goes, look at, look at, you guys aren't giving us straw anymore. Back off, help us out here. And you know, Pharaoh's response to them is, You're idle, idle. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Well, go now, work. No straw is going to be given to you. Deliver the same quote as I expect before of bricks. The officers of the children of Israel, they went where you would expect them to go. They saw that they were in trouble as after. He said, you shall reduce any of the bricks for your daily quota. Then, as they came out from Pharaoh, they went and they met Moses and Aaron. Like, hey guys, how's it going? Who stood there to meet them. Obviously, they were aware of what was going on. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. But Moses returned to the Lord then. Now understand what he said is, You are making us an enemy with the adversary. Are you aware of that? You're making us an enemy of the enemy. What are you doing? God, what do you think you're doing? Isn't this my rescue? You come in here to rescue me and this is what I get out of it? And somehow in and out, the enemy's angrier? Funny, just a moment ago, you said you were his servant. Moses doesn't even get it. So Moses then, verse 22, returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on the people? And why is it that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, all he has done evil to the people, neither you have delivered your people at all. I don't get it, God. It's gotten worse. I need to read on. Follow me on this. The Lord says to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. He says, oh, well, that was Pharaoh's turn. Now it's my turn. And that's what we're going to get, by the way, all the way through chapter 12. Like, this is what Pharaoh has to offer you. Work harder. That's what he has to offer you. Now it's more futile. It's more work, and it's, you're getting nothing out of it. Which, by the way, is a really good time to want to leave. So where are you at? And he goes, well, look at I will do to Pharaoh with a strong hand, and he will let you go. And with a strong hand, he will drive you out of this land. And God spoke to Moses, and he said to them, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Lord, I was not known to them. That's how you're going to know me, as the Lord. I've established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. I've heard their groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I'm the Lord. By the way, you'll get that's kind of the point of this. I'm the Lord. I wasn't known as the Lord, but I'm the Lord. That's who I am. Verse 6, tell them I'm the Lord. Verse 7, then you'll know that I'm the Lord. Verse 8, I'm the Lord, just in case you're missing it. Verse 6, therefore say to the children of Israel, I'm the Lord. I will bring you out from the burdens of Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. I'm not just going to release you to the wild. I'm taking you out of that to bring you to me. Don't forget that. And I'll be your God. Then you shall know that I'm the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Do you see what God said he, he will do? You're like, no, things are really rough. God's like, you don't even realize what's on my agenda. You're like, the moment right now is rough. God's like, yes, but this is the road to all of my things, that my, all of my I wills. You go, well, I don't get it. 
I'll explain that in just a moment, but I will. I'll bring out you, bring you out from your burdens. I'll rescue you. I'll redeem you. I'll take you as mine. I'll be your God. Then you'll know. Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And here's our second point in regards to this. You're sharing Jesus with someone and they can't even hear you. And it's a message of hope. How come they can't hear you? Because their bondage is so great and their life is so miserable, they can't hear anything. So what do you do? You ever see those little playground things where they kind of sit and they spin on it really, really quick? You ever see those? You can get on there after a while. Don't try to have a conversation on one of those things, especially if you're off and they're on. It's like, hey, how you doing? We're good. Hey, high five. It doesn't go real well. And the reason is because their life is spinning and yours is not. You got to pull them off. Sometimes that's just sitting there going, come on, just sit with me for a moment. We just sit and we're going to have tea and relax. In your case, decaf. I'm going to chill. And I'm here to listen. And I'm going to pray that God give you ears to listen to too. They're like, my life's miserable. You know what? Look at it. If you don't have Jesus, I expect your life to be miserable. You're like, no, my life's fine. Well, I'll wait. The Lord said to Moses, no. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to go and to let the children of Israel get out, go out of the land. Moses spoke to the Lord and he said, No, here's Moses, Captain Objections. The children of Israel didn't even listen to me, have not heeded me. How then will Pharaoh heed me? I'm of our uncircumcised lips. Remember, I'm playing that lip game again. The Lord spoke to him. He's like, What difference does it make? All you have to do is whisper to your brother. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Notice both. Give them the command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children out of the land of Egypt. And I wonder if God was like, Moses, you have a second chance to speak personally. No, 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 no. Take my brother. And then we have these interesting verses from verse 14 to 19. And we'll read these relatively quickly so we can get to the last part of this. Because we have a lineage. And I could develop all these names and there's some really beautiful and fascinating things with it. But might I just say this? God wants you to know something. He's going to lay it out. Levi, of the 12 tribes of Israel, is the third tribe. And God's going to make sure that you know that God never just picked Moses out of a pool of kids just because he was hoping he would have Levi genes. In the end of it all, from the very beginning, he knew exactly who it was going to be, and he followed that family, and he's been waiting, and he's been waiting, and he's been waiting, and he you, now it's your turn. It's your turn now. And I've been waiting. And you're like, man, oh, and I feel like I stumbled into this calling. God's like, you might have thought that way, but I've been planning this before you were born. I know what I have plans for you, says the Lord. They're not for evil. They're for good to give you a future and a hope. And I can tell you right now that my plans for you, none of this stuff is by accident. And that's why God plays this out. So much so that we go, well, why do we have to read these names? Because God knows and just follow this with me. And we won't go around with this just because it might be a little rough for you to try to say some of them. But you can, you know what, if you want, try to repeat them after me because it's kind of fun just to look at all the Hebrew you get to say. These are the heads of the father's houses, the son of Reuben. Reuben, try that. Okay, the, the firstborn of Israel was Hanoch, Palu, Hezron, Karmi, like Karmi. And these are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Shimeon, Shimeon, Yemuel, Jamin, Jamin. Hey! Actually, it's Yamin, but just the same. Ohad. And maybe look through these. I mean, like, for instance, I think Trista, you guys, you guys can all take a vote on which name you should, should you think the baby should have. Okay. Okay. 
Okay, next one, don't mess with this guy, Zohar. And then you have Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman. God wants to make sure you know he married wrong. These are the families of Shimon. Now, let's get to that third family. That's Levi, because you've got to have those Levi genes. Now, these are the names of the sons of Levi. So Levi is how we would say that. For the generations, Gershon, Gochat. Kohat's very important, by the way, because to this day, if you have the name Kohen, they'll say, well, you're actually a Jewish family line of the priest. Kohen comes from Kohat, so you know how that comes from. And Marari. Obviously, he was kind of fast in Italian. Marari. And the years of the of Levi were 137. Now, the sons of Gershom were Libni. I think he had a cold a lot. Libni. And Shimi, according to their families. The sons of Kohat were Amram. Now remember the name Amram, the son of Kohat. You get that? Kohat began is what tribe? It's the priestly tribe because it's Kohanim, right? Izhar, Hebron, Utziel. These are the years of the life of Kohat were 133. The sons of Merari were Mahali and Mushi. Who names their child Mushi? These are the families... Uh, Levi, according to families. Now, Amram, remember that guy? He was the son of Kohat, the priest, the tribe. Took for himself Yocheved. Say Yocheved. His father's sister. And some of you go, mm, I'm uncomfortable reading that. Yeah, that's his aunt. We're all aware of that. His, his wife. And she bore him Arun. Arun. But it means light bearer. And Moshe. And what does Moshe mean again? John out. Excellent. And the years of the life of Amram were 137 now the sons of of Izhar were Kohat, were Korah, and we're going to meet Korah later, and he's a real cookie. Nefeg and Zichri. And the sons of Utziel were Mishael, which means who is like God. Elzaphan, I think that's a spread you put on bread. And Zithri, he took for himself at Shiva, daughter of Aminadav, the son of Nachshon, his wife, and she bore for him Nadav. Abihu, Eleazar, and Itamar. These are important names. These four names are important because these are the sons of Aaron. And those are going to play real. Two of them, by the way, are going to turn up extra crispy soon. And you'll see what I mean later. (laughs) That'll get you reading. Now, the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaf. This is the most Hebrew probably any of you have ever spoken in this room. You're like, you know what? We had the most fun. People are like, we skipped the lineage. Are you kidding? We laughed through the whole thing. These are the families of the Korathites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel as wife, and she bore him Phineas. Phineas. And of course, his brother Ferb. Just kidding. Anyways, so these are the heads of the fathers' houses of Levites, according to their families. These are the same as, uh, this is, by the way, and here's the key point of the whole thing. This is the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their, their armies. In case you were wondering, if someone else has the Aaron, Moses, and Aaron, this particular Moses and Aaron came from this family. That's the point here. So this specific Aaron and Moses, this is the one right here. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in case you were wondering, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. It came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I'm the Lord. Remember that? In case you were missing that, or the other five times I said it. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all I say to you. Moses still wants to argue. Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh heed me? Let's go seven more verses and we'll close this up. 
They get extra credit. Because it's the whole point of all this. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be like your prophet. You shall, um, shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall speak to Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of the land. God twice more has given him an opportunity to speak on his own. Have you noticed that? And both times he's like, No, let my brother do it. My lips are uncircumcised. Now God could have grabbed a blade and just whack. What else is wrong with your lips? No, no, no. They're bleeding. You know, Isaiah tries it. Isaiah says, I'm a man of filthy lips. God has an angel grab a coal. And if God sends you somewhere, don't argue over your lips. That's the point. God says in verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. Literally, the term is to make it dense. By the way, God won't do that till chapter 9. Twice before that, Pharaoh himself will harden his heart. The idea of it is to strengthen and resolve. God doesn't change his mind. He just makes him more resolve in it. Why are you going to do this? So you can do more miracles? I don't get it. Verse 4. Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt, and I bring my armies out of the pe- and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Verse 5. And all the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt... And bring out the children of Israel from among them. At that then, Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, they did. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, here's the point of this whole thing. The argument here is, well, where's my rescue? Where's my deliverance? You said deliverance! Where's my deliverance? I don't get it! So here we are. All y'all are in a boat. All of you here, you're in a big boat, and the boat flips over. And as the boat flips over, you're all paddling in the water with all various kind of girly screams, Nathaniel, Jeffrey included. And, and in all of that, you know, you just, you just want to be, you just want to be rescued, right? So wait a minute. Now, there are five, let's say there are five lifeguards. And we go and take a look. Now, what do we surmise first? Who's going down the quickest? Those are the first people to grab, right? So we pull over in our big boat and you're just going to play that up, right? I'm number one. We pull over in the boat and we're here to rescue you. And I jump in and I grab Sister Ange, who's obviously playing it up. And so we pull the first group to the boat. And Jeffrey goes, I thought this was my rescue. What's up with this? And we jump in and we grab a few more people, pull them in the boat. Jeffrey goes, Hello! He's, he's floating on his back, but he's waiting for the rescue. Right? And he's waiting. Finally, we finally pull him in the boat, and he goes, and he looks, and he does, he pulls, he pulls a little toot on us, right? He gets a little cheeky and goes, It's about time. At that point, we want to throw him back in the water, right? Here's the point. When God's in the business of rescuing, he's just not in the business of simply rescuing you. And in this, God says, look it, I could have just killed all the Egyptians and pulled you out right from the beginning, but they wouldn't have known I was the Lord. What they would have known in the end was, I was Judge Dredd. They would not have known that I was the one who wanted to save them too. And here's the point. You call out to the Lord and you're like, God, I know you're here to rescue me. God says, I sure am here to rescue you. And you go, well, come and get me. And God's like, in a minute. (laughs) Right? And you're like, I don't get it. Well, funny, just a minute ago, you were praying that I would save your mom. And you realize, if I pulled you out of this thing right now, your mom's not going to see any of this. 
But I'm going to let you walk with this for a little bit more because in it, I, oh, I'm going to rescue you. Don't miss this. But you're not the only one I'm going to rescue. And the strange thing is if I'm so self-centered, and, here's, and we know we are because the moment that something rough hits us, this is what we do. We go, I just want to know why God did this. Like he's got one reason and it affects me. Right? If God tells me, well, let me tell you the 630,000 reasons why I'm not doing this at this moment. You're a part of that. But yesterday you prayed that that person would see their power. You prayed your neighbor would get saved. You pray that your family member would give their life to Christ. You pray that that other person would come back to Christ. And all of it. You pray, remember all those prayers? Now, where do you, do you want me to answer all those prayers? Or do you want me just to pull you out of this right now? And you're like, but God wants me happy. No, God wants you safe in Him. He wants you trusting Him. And He wants to use you. Understand in this situation... These people are like, what is up? Moses, you said we were going to be delivered. And Moses is like, he's trying to figure it out too. He hasn't read the rest of this book. It hasn't been lived out yet. He doesn't know about the ten plagues. And here's the point of it. We know how this ends. So we know that the road doesn't look as ugly because we know where it ends. Did you get that? Now the same way, we live our life like Moses did back then. We don't know. We have an idea where it ends. God promises. If we believe His promise, we know where it ends. The road's a little rough. When sometimes the road's got to go through some tough neighborhoods to get where you're supposed to go. But in it, by the time you're done, you're not the only one in the car. Because God picked up an awful lot of other people on the way, and they were people you wanted to see, see His power. Beloved, understand in this, maybe, and I know that's a word for someone in here, if not many, that God is a real interest today in letting you know He's all about rescuing. But God is not going to let you die. Now, you, we've learned how to think, I call it 2 equals 10 syndrome. On a scale of 1 to 10, it's a 2, but we call it a 10, you know? And it's like, I'm in the pit of despair. I'm going to die. And God's like, no, you're not. You're floating with your back up, but you're in the water. And you're telling everyone. And you know what? And the people are listening, and they want to hear about the power of God, and this is what it's all about, the unpower of you. That's what we're giving testimony. Let me tell you how miserable my life is. And they're like, yeah, and you should give your life to Jesus, like me. Uh-huh, right, so I could be like you. You know? Well, it's just, it's just hard, man. I got my gallbladder problems, and I just can't sleep at night, and I sweat, and I'm just... And people are mean and nasty to me, and I carry my Bible, and people point, and they whisper, and I know they're talking about me. It's just miserable, and I think I'm going to get fired from my job. It's a, it's a rough life. You should give your life to Jesus. And you're like, join your club? Uh-uh. Really? Otherwise, they're like, look at... You know what? Jesus, in John chapter 10, John chapter 11 was told that one of the best friends he'd ever have on earth was dying. Lazarus. Two women that clearly he loved dearly, his sisters, were the ones sending the word. And I challenge you to see it on your own. It says, because he loved them, he waited. Those are rough words to hear. You just thought, wait a minute, but if he loved him, wouldn't he just run in there and just fix the problem? The problem wasn't his sickness. The problem was their faith. And he shows up, and by the time he shows up, Lazarus has been dead for four days. It is hopeless without him. Now, there are times where God could step in, and you can give testimony of how God helped you. God didn't help you. God rescued you. There's a difference. 
And if Jeffrey's there floating on his back and I just kind of gently nudge him over to the boat, Jeffrey could talk about, you know, I was 95% of the way there, but PT just gave me that extra 5%. And people give testimony like that. You know, I was doing this and this and this and this and I was doing really good and God just gave me that little nudge. And God's like, fool, you really don't get it, do you? I'll wait. I'll wait till your testimony was, it was helpless. And then God stepped in. Because you know what? None of us are that honest. But the people that are out there that are struggling want to be that honest with themselves. And they really want to hear one of us be honest enough to say, I'm helpless without him. Oh, by the time he gets there, his sisters both rebuke Jesus. If you'd been there, my brother wouldn't have died. Yeah, yeah. But this isn't going to end in death. I already promised that. I know the end of the road. You only see the road. And I don't know what road you got right now, but if you're following the Lord, if you're following the Lord, I know where it ends up, and it's good. It's as good as it gets. It is amazing. But I'm asking you now to love God and others enough to trust Him when He jumps in. Because if it ain't happening the way you think it should happen, chances are God's involving a lot more people in this right now that He wants to touch. So get out of his way. Stop arguing with him and let him use you to answer the prayers you've been laying before him in the first place. Last thing as we pray. Have you accepted this, God? Are you still trying to do stuff to try to think in the end of it all? God will judge and go, that's good enough. Are you actually trusting there is a God who loved you so much that he'd rather die than live without you? Because that's the real God. And I'm here to present evidence. I hated people. And that's just not me anymore. I am so thankful for what the Lord's doing in my life and in the life of so many around me. Like you. So as we pray, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'll invite you to that right now. To say yes. If you have, can we pray for more faith? Let's pray, friends. Okay, Lord, we trust you are a God of miracles. Including the fact that you would call an 80-year-old man and his 83-year-old spokesman. Including the fact that in this room we just went through more than two chapters of Scripture. And in that, Lord, we recognize you are behind the scenes in places we think you're absent. Where people tend to like us less where situations we were comfortable in are now less comfortable. Places where we could rest are now places we're restless. All those things, God, that you do so profoundly to get us out of where we're supposed to be gone from. But Lord, I recognize that though you will spend a very short period of time delivering the people out of Egypt, You'll spend more than 40 years delivering Egypt out of the people. And Lord, I don't want to love what's not mine. So don't let me love this world. Don't let me love my own destruction. And I'll tell you naturally, I do. But Lord, I pray right now for every believer here, myself included. Your Holy Spirit would speak to us right now about where we've been struggling with you instead of 
expecting you to do great, glorious things through these tough times. And whether, Lord, that's financial or circumstantial or in relationships, wherever it is, I trust this. You're good. And somehow, Lord, if you're not doing things the way I expected, even promises I know you've given me, Lord, I trust there'll be a reason for it that will involve other people crying out to you in the end. And Lord, that's my heart's desire is first to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to see others love you the same. So Lord, that's... And, and, and Lord, you know what that's going to take for my children and to claim you as their, not just the Lord, but the Lord, their God. You know what that's like for my wife to give testimony, Lord, as she sees how you live in my life, as she cries out to you herself. And Lord, in our own life, that could be water mains bursting or leaky floors or a crazy dog or it could be neighbors or bills or things or whatever, God. It's for any of us. It could be their jobs. It could be whatever it is, Lord. Give us the joy that surpasses circumstance so that when people think we have nothing to praise you for, they find we still have everything to praise you for. And right now in this room, by the sound of this voice, hey, let's be real. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus? I'm not asking you, have you gone to church to keep God away from you? Ironic as that would be. Or keep him happy. I know that if you came to my house and you didn't hang out with me, I'd probably be a little offended. But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, I know that your resistance may be because of what you think you may have to leave at the cross, and more than likely it's true. But right now, the Lord would rather give you that which is permanent for the trade of your temporary. Moses in the end of it all, is asking for more than just to go out and go do a feast and then go back. They're never going to go back to Egypt. God would like to deliver you out of darkness, of emptiness. The very reason why you're holding on to the things you won't let go at the cross. But right now, he would like to take them all and trade them for peace and joy. Love. And if that's you, I'd like to pray a prayer right now and ask you to listen. And if at the end of this prayer you agree, I ask you to give an, a hearty amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I, I confess to you, I, I know I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. And Lord, in that, you as a righteous judge punish all wrongdoing. But if you really do love me so much that you would send your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, who is totally innocent, but to pay for all the penalty of my crimes, my wrongdoings, every bad thing, thought, felt, intended, pondered. And you were willing to take all of that punishment and give it to him instead of me. And he was willing to take it. And then rise again from the grave three days later so I can walk innocent before you. Be completely reinvented 
set free. For if that's your offer, I say yes. Yes to Jesus as my ransom and my payment. Yes to Jesus as my Savior. And yes to Jesus as my Lord. He has the right now to be not just Lord, but to be my Lord. And in that I say, please, do with my life that which is so much better than I can. Lead me in the way that you want. I'm yours. In Jesus' name, and if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.